Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Dr. Artina Hamilton. She's a human geographer, diversity and equity practitioner, author, public speaker, and scholar. We talk about the unseen and underpublicized topic of violence against black women and girls in the United States. For this conversation, we're joined by Judge Gail Williams Byers of the South Euclid Municipal Court as we continue our discussions about race and racism in America. Dr. Hamilton, we um, hear a lot in the news about uh, violence against black men, especially by police. Um, Violence against black women has not been as publicized, but is equally problematic. Is that correct? That is definitely correct. I think that disproportionately, when we think of um, the black community, there's uh, overemphasis on black men. I mean, historically, if we look at the, I, I think about the Monaghan Report, where it talks about the black family and the reason that the black family is falling apart is because uh, black women are there. And then we have, of course, the 1980s, where you see the narrative of the single black woman. So there's been a kind of two double-edged sword, where there's an overfocus on black men because we want to put them back on their proper stool, right? We want to put them in power. But at the same time, it's consistently um, neglectful of Black women. And of course, I had to say Black girls, because at the same time that we're focusing on um, the women and young girls in general, we know that young Black girls are frequently adultified um, and criminalized within schools as well as in everyday public spaces. And the the violence is uh, with police. Uh, Washington Post came out with a report, I believe, in September saying that uh, 250 uh, black women have been fatally shot since 2015 and 89 in their own homes. Uh, But it's not just police violence, correct? That's correct. I mean, the the biggest thing that, you know, as a geographer I talk about is just how everyday places can be sites of violence. So it's not just by police. It's also uh, domestic partner violence that occurs as well. Um, And again, I think about in COVID, we know that there was a disproportionate amount of women that were stuck in the house with their abusers. So we see those numbers also escalating. And again, 
going from the violence that happens in the private sphere to the public sphere, truly um, Black women and young girls frequently lack protection. And I think that also goes back just to the historical trope of Black womanhood, um, that Black women were othered. They didn't have the protection of femininity, of being seen as frail or virtuous. Um, They just had to handle things as they could. There's an amazing book called At the Dark End of the Street. Um, I forget the author. She talks about the the numerous, numerous amount of Black women who faced physical violence and sexual violence, um, not only by the police, but also within multiple different social rights, social rights and civil rights movements, um, and how frequently Black women are put in a position to protect Black men, even when they are the victims of that violence. That strong Black woman uh, image uh, is both a positive image, but it can be seen as a negative, correct? Yes, yes. But but the, the, the question I always have is who created the strong Black woman image, right? So during slavery, as I frequently talk about Black women, um, their sexual labor, physical labor, and just taking care of the household and literally the plantation, they were relied upon. But part of this view of being strong, it was an act of survival. Again, you did not have the words or the room to pass out or to faint, you had to function. And that frequently, I see that a lot today, right? There's this, you know, even as we have a call for um, Me Too and self-care, there are still numerous examples of uh, Black women who talk about their exhaustion um, and how generationally they've been taught to kind of deal with it and suck suck it up. But one of the things I'm, I'm really kind of excited about at this moment is at the same time that we are looking at the strong Black women as a trope, there is this acknowledgement that there is a breaking point. Uh, an example I can give you is, you know, Sandra Bland. It seems like there was a, a different moment when Sandra Bland was murdered and Breonna Taylor. There have recently been a lot of women that are saying, wait a minute, we are protesting and galvanizing around Black men and their murders, but this young girl was murdered and so many other others. Uh, Rakia Boyd, um, etc. But what are we doing around that work? And also we need Black men and others to stand up for us. Black women are always on the forefront of so many different social movements, whether it is Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ issues, uh, Black in the Ivory Tower. And so now I'm beginning to see this kind of accountability that's saying, well, I'm strong, but also I'm tired. Take that back in history, even to the women's suffrage movement, the the black woman experience with that uh, was very strong, but also ended up being very negative uh, towards them. Yeah, I I think there's always been this tension um, definitely between um, white and black women where white women felt like they were left out of the kind of patriarchal empire of white masculinity. So they are fighting the suffragists in this example, fighting for certain types of rights. But also let's remember it's a particular type of class right. So the rights that they were fighting for were for white educated white Anglo-Saxon Protestant women, right? These are people that would go to the cities and even Appalachia and say, 
hey, we want to help you have a better life. But it's kind of written around this very respectable womanhood. Whereas for many Black women that were also involved in the opposite, the, the Black women's club movement, they were like, well, I have to work. And even if I'm educated, I don't have the privilege of femininity. I still have to speak up and I still have to, I'm, I'm not seen in the same way that you are. I'm not given this type of a pass to live in the world. So I think there's always been tensions on how these particular groups see freedom um, and even, you know, of course, feminism. Um, Dr. Hamilton, I want to first thank you so much for being with us, but I also want to thank you for um, recognizing how Black women have certainly taken um, the lead and been extraordinarily supportive and even vocal in moving this, the conversations um, to the forefront, be it about, um, you know, the treatment of Black men, uh, which are often our sons, our brothers, our husbands, our neighbors, um, but also insisting that um, as Black women, we be recognized for um, the the effect and the impact on us directly. And particularly, as you mentioned, um, the loss of my soror, um, Sandra Bland, um, and how, you know, even from that point to this one is juxtaposed against the loss of Breonna Taylor, um, whereas, um, you know, there are so many in the community that are still awaiting what is defined for, for so many is justice that, that's not yet been realized. Um, how do you, you see these movements continuing to galvanize and how do we continue to give voice um, to Black women such that, again, they, they continue to, um, you know, push the conversations forward. And how do we uh, empower them? Um, because obviously, you know, protests, albeit peaceful, um, have in fact yielded some results. But I think that, um, you know, as we continue to move forward, certainly something more tangible is what is needed in order to, to continue to, to move forward. I, would you agree? I do agree, but I think um, going back to your original question, how do we disrupt this kind of engendered racism and sexism towards Black women? Um, I've been thinking about this for quite some time. I think it starts really early on, right? I think that I know for me, I grew up in a house full of girls and, you know, I always knew that my father, he wanted a son, <laughs> you know, to have a son meant that he didn't have to deal with certain um, headaches. And I think that within our communities, um, there's an old saying that we love our daughter. Um, no, we love our sons and we raise our daughters. And so, you know, black men, young boys are frequently super duper protected and people look out for them. But black girls, right, black girls are told very early that they cannot make mistakes. They have to be super responsible. Even if they make mistakes, they have to figure it out. And I don't know if we protect them as much as we should protect them. So for me, some of the intervention starts really early. It's having uh, conversations within our communities about how we protect our girls and also questioning some of the tactics that happen. So for instance, you know, there's, there's numerous stories of girls that deal with not only violence from outside, but within their families, but it's kind of a hushed type of secret that's violent. You know, I talk about direct and structural violence a lot. So there's the institutional, but then there are these kind of personal balances that are kind of ignored because they are women and young girls. So we have to look at that and we also have to empower our girls and not only this kind of hypothetical, be strong, you're a strong black woman, but giving them the words to articulate the strength that's needed. 
So for me, my father is so funny. My father, rest in peace, was very patriarchal. We asked my daddy for everything. Okay. My mom was strong, but she pretty much went into him. But my father raised me to be uh, um, a hellraiser and to be strong and to question things and to walk into this world with pride and to push forth. And I think that is what we have to kind of integrate because we also have this moment where in the midst of all this, that young girls are being told to be quiet, to be silent, don't don't say anything. Even as I'm looking at people online that are saying, hey, we're fighting for Black Lives Matter and Black men, Black men, but what about these girls? There's kind of this kind of cancel culture and pushback that's stating that if you fight for young Black girls and Black women, then you're all of a sudden a man-hater or you don't, you're not for the race. We have to disrupt that because, again, these girls will become women, right? And they also teaching the children in the future. So I think we have to do some kind of work in between because right now it feels like there's a tension. It's a hyper focus on the lives of black men because we see our fathers, our brothers, et cetera. But also there's so many girls that are getting lost along the way. And there are so many women that continue to die. And I mean, I have to say, I, I don't see the outpouring. I don't see the outpouring like I see when a black man is murdered or something happens. Just to go back to the even the personal within a personal realm, um, even the way that we look at domestic violence, right within the black community, um, is kind of a secret that someone's that's their business. We don't deal with it. We have to disrupt all of the violences. I agree, um, and I think that you know something you said is absolutely so poignant, which is. You know, we have to begin to give our young ladies voice very early on, telling them and empowering them to speak up for themselves and to um, protect themselves very early on does not make them the angry black woman that they'll become um, when they grow into these women that no doubt they'll, they will be being able to, you know, voice their concerns and to insist that they be protected by um, the men in their lives and even the communities that they serve does not make them angry. It empowers them and they have a right to expect to be um, protected. They have a right to expect to be supported. They have a right to expect to be uplifted. And you are absolutely, I think, correct and on point when you say there's the absolute outpouring of support um, perhaps for black men, because we've just seen it so often in our, you know, televisions and our our feeds and our um, pages, our social media pages are, you know, often just overrun with the the saddening stories of what's happening to black men, and often silenced when it comes to the the myriad of stories that are um, that depict the plight of young black women. And um, and especially, like you said, when it comes to domestic violence in my community, domestic violence is the number one violent crime in, in this community. And the pandemic has served um, in a way to spike that curve and also to silence that at the same time, which is very a very troubling statistic. And we do have to find a way to give voice to that because, you know, the the alternative is not acceptable. What's what what's the alternative to the domestic violence being spiked and domestic violence being your number one violent act uh, from a judge's point of view? How do you address that? How do you break that chain? 
I would say, Tom, from my point of view, you know, the, the concern that I have is um, the same one that perhaps we, many of us faced, even when I was a prosecutor, is not giving a path. When you, when you have that as a spike and you know you're having a, a low level of reporting and there are clearly more cases that are happening that are being reported, then what's happening is what by the time you get those cases there and they're far more likely to be violent cases that have the far more um, dangerous outcomes than what you're looking at is not likely domestic violence, but you're probably looking at something that's closer to homicide or something where the assault is far more egregious. And so it's not merely the, the punch in the eye or the simple bruising, but now you're talking about either broken bones or the loss of life, or maybe even some something that endangers a child or another person in a household, especially in, in a time when, again, you know, you've got, you know, a pandemic, which, you know, sort of locks people in. And if, again, the chances that you have these, the, the reports, you just sort of know that they're not being reported as frequently as, as they should be. And by the time they do, you know, they're, you know, the behavior is probably ratcheted up to a degree where it's, it's, pretty considerable. I just want to add it to something that, so when you talk about the numbers being unreported, I think also it's still connected to this kind of uh, cultural silence around it, right? That we know that it was happening, but work and the everyday experiences of life sometimes was a disruption from that violence. And then also there is this kind of theme of protection, again, um, within Black communities and Black families. Black men have it so hard. I don't want to make it worse for them, you know? I don't want to get the law involved. I mean, I've seen this with friends. I don't want to, you know, put them on child support. And again, this over protection. And he's already on probation. I don't want to make it harder. I don't want his PO to find out. Or, you know what, he's all he just started back working. So I don't want to mess that up because at least he's buying the pampers or Yes, yes. But the thing is there is Never <laughs> grace given for women and young girls, right? I mean, you know, we've all heard this story. Um, there's a large amount of um, sexual violence and rapes that happen on college campuses. And the first thing is, what were you wearing? I, I remember watching a movie where a woman is talking to her mother. It's a black woman. And she's telling her mother, my husband is uh, assaulting me. And the mother says, what did you do? There's always this super uh, get out of jail free card, literally, that are, that's giving to young black boys and black men, but that's also part of socialization. But with one with young girls, they aren't given that. And they also don't expect it. That's the part of it too, right? That I think that for young black men, we always talk about the talk that black families have with their children, you know, the police, keep your hands on the steering wheel. There's not a a, a talk for young black girls. There just isn't. Well, okay, there may be one, don't get pregnant, right? That's a sentence. But there's not a talk about all of the ways in which this world can crush you. And I think that that is extremely harmful because what happens is in some ways it erases the humanity. So you have these tropes of either these black women that are super duper supportive of the black men they're fighting or the angry black woman that just doesn't care because there can't be in between. There can be multiple different stories and, and the strong black woman, excuse me. And that again, ignores these multi-layered stories that black women and black girls have. When you talk about the angry black woman, is that different in your definition from the strong black woman? 
Yes, I, I definitely think so. I think, you know, um, there's a, a kind of class and educational piece to it sometimes. Uh, so the notion of this strong Black woman, uh, someone who can deal with a lot of different things, she has it together, you know, she's strong. It's also very romanticized. My grandmother, she raised 15 kids and her husband was always working and she did it and she with a smile, right? And she was great. But then versus the angry Black woman, which now I think that's frequently used as a penalty. So if you say anything, you're an angry Black woman. I love what you said um, earlier, Gail. You mentioned something about, you know, being mad. Solange knows there's an amazing song called You Have the Right to Be Mad. So frequently as a Black woman, if you are talking in a very level tone, you're providing facts, resources, but if or anything, you can be called an angry black woman. And it's really a way of silencing you. I think for, you know, white women, they might call them sassy and other things that are egregious, but it's a very racialized way. And no one will call you an angry black woman exactly, but they'll code it. They might say, oh, you're really aggressive or, oh, you're really assertive. I mean, I had a conversation with a colleague or someone said I had a very strong presence and that people were afraid to talk around me. Really what she was saying is people did not like the fact that I was calling their racism out. And so now I have become a problem. And unfortunately, those are the narratives that we get in media. Um, and we don't see the vulnerable, the vulnerable nature of all these other things. We are strong, we are mad, angry and all that, but also there's these other pieces that are ignored. And when our humanity is erased, it makes it easier for people to villainize us and say, well, if they were shot, if she was shot by the police, what was she doing? Who was she dating? What was wrong with her? Yes, it always comes back full circle. Again, what was wrong with her? I mean, I don't know, Gail, I know that you have multiple cases, but, you know, I've read about cases of young girls, I mean, as young as eight, nine, ten, and, you know, they were raped, and it is the little girl that was doing something. So, again, taking the onus off of the man. Indeed. And so I would also say, and I would even go as far as to say that I don't know that, I know that in, you know, the in my culture and in, in our culture, that there is clearly a distinction between um, what's considered angry and what is considered um, strong. But I think that in white America, that there is no real distinction or there is no such thing really as a strong black woman. I think that there's always and perhaps only um, an angry black woman or fairly exclusively an angry black woman. And that just about any black woman who is um who owns herself who um does not wilt um one who is firm in her beliefs and clearly willing to articulate them who has self control um while willing to exercise that self control but be very conscious of um, what they are willing to accept and even not accept and and to hold fast to those to that belief system, that personal credo that that um, to so many is um, that's off-putting and that that makes them an angry black woman and why they have to be you know black and angry is just beyond me because it, it again it's sort of, you know, symbolizes that that double negative that if you're you know if you're black with those attributes that makes you angry and all of that makes it bad. 
But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, any woman who were white and had perhaps those similar attributes, you know, I suppose now they're just a nasty woman. I don't know. But um, but again, you know, the moniker of being an angry black woman has been something that, you know, black women have had to deal with and had to wear, I mean, such that now I, I think that black women wear it with as much pride as, you know, Obamacare, if you will. But because I, I don't think that we shy away from it because I don't know that for me, at least, I don't wear that any less than I would the the moniker of being a strong woman because both of them, either of those would not make me what I feel like shirk my responsibility of being a role model to the next generation of young women who I would still hope would find their voice to stand up for themselves, to, you know, show that when they have a certain, you know, level of, of personal, um, personal um, expectations that they insist that those around them recognize that and appreciate it. And if that makes you black and angry, aside from being a woman, then so be it. But I, I certainly agree that, you know, if, and if we don't do it, then we can't teach others how to treat us. If that is, if it doesn't start, the classroom of life starts with you as the teacher. And yeah, there'll be others that attempt to label you, but you only wear a label if you pick it up and, and you put it on, but you can lay it down anytime you want to is, is my perspective. At the end of the day, um, those labels don't matter because for many white people, it is all the same thing. And I want to ask you this. I was just thinking as you were talking, I thought about Michelle Obama, right? So Michelle Obama is a great example. She is amazing. So many things. And, you know, there was almost I think this moment of shock for some they were like oh she's educated she's poised she's this and that but then of course the racism came right and it's like she's angry she's angry she's angry so it, it doesn't matter but you also as Audre Lorde said you have to define yourself for yourself we'll be back after this message the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educated students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Well, let's move that forward to Senator Harris, uh, who I think is is uh, having to walk a fine line in how the public perceives her for election 
purposes. Yet, after a debate with the vice president, the president calls her a monster, you know, and perpetuates uh, that somehow she was uh, terrible to to the vice president. It, it seems like we went from Michelle Obama to now Senator Harris, and and. And both of them have had to walk a fine line. And if I can say, Tom, I think there has to be some form of source consideration. Um, because I think that we can sort of temper that with, you know, do we want to believe that it's almost like the ransom of Red Chief, right? Do you, you know, do you put any more credence into that than you do, you know, A, the fact that, you know, we may be talking about an individual who, you know, consistently takes issue with any, seemingly any woman, in particular, any woman of color um, with whom he does not agree. I mean, you know, Yamiche Alcindor, Abby Phillip. It's a denigration. It's, it's, it's fuel on the fire. It's stoking the inherent bias and racism that, that exists. Indeed. And so I think this, this is, I, I here's what I would say is if, it were different and there had been, you know, heaps of praise placed upon this, the Senator, I would have been shocked and would perhaps have considered it disingenuous. Why? Because that would be inconsistent with the behavior and the language I've seen so far. So (laughs) to hear that is fairly consistent with what has been said, although denigrating indeed and agreed. And absolutely misplaced, inappropriate, abhorrent, and um, you know all, all of the racist terms that that have clearly been outlined here. But it's also, again, I think a, a part of it for those who are um, intelligent and intellectual enough, you have to to do a little bit of, of source consideration and say, yeah, let's just consider the source. This is, you know, are, are we really going to? to put a whole lot of stock in, in someone who, you know, finds themselves the authority on, on determining the IQ of everyone. Is that, is that what we do? And do we value them so much that we actually care what they think? Because that goes back to what, what um, Dr. Hamilton was saying, which is, you know, essentially your opinion of me is your problem, not mine. That's, not my opinion of me, nor do I own it. And it seems as if your opinion of most everyone is something that is low or non-existent. If it is not in line with what your perception or your belief is this day, because it's quite possible that I, you could have a high opinion of me today and tomorrow, no matter you know, depending on how the wind is blowing, that opinion could change no matter who I am. Dr. Hamilton, jump in if you, if you like. No, I mean, I agree. I, I think that, you know, we are still for some, I'm going to say for some in this world of a delusion where we are trying to rely on civility. That's a very popular word, civility, that certain things can happen. And, you know, what is the intent? But you know, this person told you who he is and it doesn't change. And I, I agree with you, Gail. Um, it would be disingenuous if there wasn't this kind of mudslinging politics that happened. And it happens frequently. It's a similar narrative as I just talked about with Michelle. 
I saw it, though, as how dare she, as a black woman, albeit a black woman senator, challenge a white vice president. Yeah, that's that's the way it was framed for me. Uh, and it just was repugnant. I couldn't just blow it off. But I think it's it's also these racial politics. How dare she, a black person, challenge this white patriarchal situation that we have up here, right? I think that we are seeing that more and more. Many of us have lived with it. So, you know, it's it's actually nothing new. It's just kind of heightened now. Um, but I think that we've always known this existed. I mean, even when I think about Hillary, for some, I would think, you know, when you look at the numbers, we had, I think, with the 53%, and there were also a large amount of Black men that voted for, um, voted for Trump as well, right? Because for some, Hillary was just too close to Barack. That was an extension of a Black presidency. Because underneath all this, it, it was that she is a Black woman, but it's also that she's Black and the type of Blackness that she represents and the potential of what that could bring. Agreed. And understanding that um, the senator represents, again, this, this you know, it's still a, a double negative. Not only is she Black, she's also a woman. And that and is in, and in power and in so. power. Um, and, and again, as that's, that's the, also the kind of power that in, in a democracy is the kind of power we must agree to vest in her. And so if there's this idea that, hey, I don't agree to giving this strong black woman this power because fill in the blank for whatever the reason is. And it could be because. You know, I don't believe black women will, you know, take care of the power I give them. I believe that, you know, it's, it's better in the in the hands of white men. And maybe that's the, you know, that is the sentiment. And now we can all agree that that is not only sexist, but racist and, and wrongheaded. But that is also the reality of the environment that we still find ourselves in, even in 2020. And what we hear frequently, even from, you know, the highest office in the land is the repetition in, in large degree and not even to the point of hiding it, is that there are, you know, there is some reason to not trust power in the hands of certain minority groups or, you know, certain people. And that the only ones who should be and can be and would be trusted with this level of power and authority were all the ones that, that are already in places of power and authority, which is insulting to, to the highest levels imaginable to those of us who are expected to trust these power systems. But then it's also a, a, another catch me too, because I find it funny that at the same time, uh, that BIPOC, Black, Indigenous people of color, women of color, and in particular Black women specifically, are told to sit down and be quiet. We are frequently used to fix things as helpmates. We are, you know, uh, as, as I would say, racial crisis managers. We're involved in everything. But when you want the crown, when you want something very, very visible position, then all of a sudden it is a problem. You know, it's consistently a problem, but then at the same time, your labor 
your money, right? Uh, donations are requested, but at the same time, people don't want to hear your voice. Oh, well, how about your vote as a block? Yes. Yeah. And that's for either side. Understand that, you know, the, the voting block, the largest voting block um, is black women, black women, and particularly for, you know, one particular political party it heavily relied upon black women lead black households overwhelmingly more so than either, you know, dual parent homes. They overwhelmingly lead black single parent homes. And so, indeed, they are frequently the voice and and the the leaders of homes in the black community, and are heavily relied upon to be essentially the engine of these same communities that are expected to help catapult and even move some of these same leaders over the finish line, but are yet not entrusted enough to help lead some of the very communities that rely upon them to to move forward. Now, that's a a very interesting relationship, if you will, that is formed. But that reminds me, Gail, we talk about the voting block, and I'm going to go back to the Black community, even looking at the people who finance and make up a large uh, majority of the Black church, right? Even though uh, there is obviously a large amount of sexism that happens in the Black church. It is always the backs of Black women, the power and everything else. And again, going back to protection, these institutions don't necessarily step in and intervene or even advocate on behalf of these individuals that have been marginalized within a marginal group. Let me move to uh, sort of something that I've read here recently, and and that is that culturally and historically, we have looked at black women from back in the days of slavery until today, black women and black girls, I want to make that distinction, as disposable commodities. Do we still have that view, and is that what is reflected in the violence against black women and girls and it not having the prominence of violence against others? I think that would reign fairly true, unfortunately. I think that um, during enslavement, again, that there's not even really a big difference, I think, that was made between um, enslaved women and young girls and children. And so immediately, as soon as you could have a child, you could. So there was sexual violence. Um, there was labor. And even when slavery ends, we know that these women become the property of their husbands. There's a large record of uh, women that were also abused after slavery ends because now you have Black men that are saying, I want this thing that I didn't have access to. And so throughout history, Black women are the bedrock and foundation of their families, but then at the same time, they have been commodified. We see that with pop culture. It's everything but the burden. So Black women are trendsetters. They create all these fashions. There are women that pay millions of dollars that look like us, but at the same time, we find ourselves erased out of various different um 
companies as well as professions. And even I think about this new movement, Protect Black Women, um, Meg Thee Stallion, who is a hip hop artist. She wrote an essay, I think, for New York Times. And she talks about, you know, this incident she was involved in where she was villainized despite being the victim. So there is still this situation where Black women and Black girls have to prove their innocence. And I want to go back to Black girls again. I, I, this adultification of Black girls, uh, there has been a lot of conversations going on, not only about the treatment of Black girls within Black communities, but just in general. We know that disproportionately that Black girls are criminalized, they're put in juvenile centers, they're suspended from school, and it's viewed that they looked older than they were, or they seem to be more mature. So that socialization, right, that disregard of uh, Black female agency, Black femininity, it starts extremely early and it can follow you all the way into adulthood unless there's an intervention. So I think that we don't think about it in that way. I mean, we're looking at it, but I, I don't know if people have looked at it closely because it's it's so prolific and it's such an issue. I mean, I have, um, I'm at a boarding school and I teach a lot of my black female students and they feel like they have to fight for their voice, but they don't want to be perceived as angry. They want to be, don't want to be perceived as aggressive. And they're very aware of all these multiple burdens and they're only 15, 16. And, and not really equipped at that age to handle those burdens. Yeah. Not really equipped, but also why should you have to? That is the other thing. So they're not equipped, but also sometimes they literally have to be pushed into a situation where they have to develop those skills. Um, but also sometimes they can be in environments where they're expected to be equipped. So, um, you know, you can have a situation in a high school where there may be a disagreement. And typically, if it's a disagreement between a black female student and a white female student, there might be a tendency to lean towards the white student and seeing her as innocent. And these girls learn at a very early age that they have to advocate for themselves, but also they have to be very measured. And it's just a lot because they're still developing. So they have to learn all of these kind of politics around the femininity and their race and being adultified but also negotiating life with no resources. Because again, as much as we have these talks about police violence, these talks um, mentoring with young girls and teaching them how to call themselves by themselves and just to be empowered, we don't have those. And we definitely don't have them in schools. That's not something we talk about in schools. Sometimes that's the major side of violence towards our Black girls. And again, remembering that they're only 15 or 16 years old. And so the level of expectation that we're placing upon them before we launch them into, you know, a, a real society is ridiculous. After this conversation, I am um, more pessimistic than I perhaps was coming into the conversation that things are going to change and change markedly and for the better. Uh, you talked, Dr. Hamilton, about early intervention. Um, is there any other hope other than that? I mean, what can be done to to solve these issues? Um, I think for me, I am pragmatic. And when I say that sometimes there aren't easy solutions, but we just have to sit in the discomfort of it. 
Um, you know, even with interventions, that would mean that we have a nice representation of individuals that understand and are willing to cultivate those environments um, for these young Black girls to see themselves, uh, to feel okay with being themselves, right? So as much as we have, there's so much representation, social media, we have all these things, the the social emotional development of young girls is still missing within our schools, especially if the schools are underserved and even in our schools that are independent schools. So I think to partly add that, I think having these conversations, for me, I'm constantly uh, leading these conversations and I share with my students my own experience because that's part of it too. There's a lot of silence in the Black community and there's been so many things that you just don't talk about. This is our business. I'm going to keep it here. But I think that we have to um, be brave, but also for our white allies and teachers, because still most of our schools, unless it's like historically black uh, college university or predominantly um, BIPOC institution, these are very white spaces. So stepping outside of your comfort zone and truly doing the research to understand the experiences of your girls. When I was at Ohio University um, teaching African-American studies, I, I think maybe once I had an education major, like if you're teaching in a predominantly black environment or Latinx, et cetera, you need to know the people and not just read, um, you know, stamp from the beginning or a Martin Luther King quote. You need to know the people to be comfortable to also curate those um, conversations, because that's also kind of where education is turning out. It used to be you would teach. You didn't deal with that. Figure it out. But that is now part of your job, not only K through 12, but also in higher ed. There is going to be some deep emotional work that you have to do to help cultivate these conversations so that kids can not only learn, but be transformative and be productive citizens. Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much for your time and your conversation and your expertise. Um, it was really a pleasure to talk with you. And I, I know, Judge, uh, you feel the same. I absolutely do. Dr. Hamilton, I thank you so much for your time today and for educating us so proficiently in this area that often goes untouched um, and unaddressed and even ignored to a large degree. And so thank you so much for giving it its proper attention and giving us so much of your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you both for having me. It was enjoyable. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with human geographer, Dr. Artina Hamilton, about a big problem in our culture, violence against black women and girls. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me. You can do that at my email address, hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.
www.edu.edu.